Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. The UN's annual climate summit, COP28, came to a close in Dubai this week with what some have called a breakthrough. For the first time ever, countries agreed to transition away from fossil fuels. They also agreed to curb methane emissions and triple renewable energy capacity in the next seven years. It has taken 28 years for COP to put down the F words on paper. That's fossil and fuel. But while it's good they've agreed to transition away from coal, oil and gas, it is long overdue and it's not binding. In other words, there is no way to force anyone to comply with anything that was agreed this week at COP. So was the Dubai COP a failure or a success? It depends on who you ask. I spoke to someone this week who framed it a bit differently. Ultimately, it's all about the money. Many of the technologies to create clean electricity already exist, whether it's solar or wind. The problem, as always, is how to pay for it, especially if you're in the developing world where many countries are already burdened with high interest payments on their existing debt. And those ones, they struggle to raise more funds to invest in their futures. How do we help them? Well, my guest this week is Rajiv Shah. He's the president of the Rockefeller Foundation. Shah spends a lot of time figuring out how to get philanthropists to invest more in climate change and also then how to multiply that money by joining forces with governments and multilateral lenders. Shah has also served in government as the head of USAID under the Obama administration. So these are all areas he knows all too well. If this is your first time with us, welcome. We take some questions from subscribers to our magazine, and you can sign up on foreignpolicy.com. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. Let's dive in. Raj, welcome to FP Live. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. So you were just at COP uh, in Dubai. What was the mood like then? Well, you know, I was at the beginning of COP during the leaders' visits, and I think the mood was mixed, to be honest. It was a well-run COP. It's a, a large uh, conference facility, so the logistics were smooth and effective. Uh, but in reality, you know, we, as you point out in your introduction, the world needs bold global leadership in order to avert a climate catastrophe. And while the COP appears to be making incremental progress on the official side, you know, it, it uh, expectations were very high, and it's not clear they're going to be met. Mm. And then there was the background noise, or maybe the foregrounded noise that the UAE is hosting, and uh, the COP president, Dr. Sultan Al Jaber, the head of ADNOC, the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. Uh, there was a fair bit of controversy over fossil fuel phasing out, as I mentioned. Did that come up as a, an issue when you were there that was overshadowing the talks? Well, it was an, a constant issue, of course. It is the, the prime uh, negotiating point is the type of language in the official negotiations around the official phase out of fossil fuels. And to be clear, each of the last several COPs have stopped short of that language, even though uh, officially phasing out fossil fuels over time is the only viable path to enable Earth to remain at one and a half degrees and potentially even under two degrees of warming. So 
that is one of the more contentious uh, issues. And I think the COP will be judged based on whether they ultimately agree to that type of phase out language. And how do you sort of consider and reflect with the people who say that uh, we need fossil fuels in the short term, you can't just get rid of it. So you need them for now. And then you need to invest in greener forms of energy in the future. So it's a bit of a trade-off. There's a, a now problem and a future problem. And in a sense, the people who make that argument, uh, they defend the likes of the UAE and uh, other major fossil fuel producers to do what they do. Yeah. Well, you know, look, I think actually there, this sometimes becomes a false debate. The truth is we know that we need $3.8 trillion of new financing on an annual basis globally in order to invest in energy and climate transitions. We know that transition has to be moving away from fossil fuels to renewable energy technologies. That's all known. It's all completely agreed. The International Energy Agency puts out excellent analyses on both the requirements and the progress along those lines. And at the same time, we know that while the world is making some progress on renewables, although it is not progress that's equally spread across the entire planet, and it needs to be, uh, we also know the world is increasing, not decreasing its current consumption of fossil fuels. So, you know, both things have to happen, a phase out of fossil fuels and a massive scaling up of renewables. Everyone knows it, and it's not really an issue of debating which of those has to happen. They both have to happen, and they have to happen much more aggressively than the paths we're on. So one of the challenges here, and I feel like it always comes down to this, is money. And um, you wrote an essay uh, for foreign policy a couple of weeks ago in which you argued, uh, as you just cited, that the world needs $3.8 trillion annually, and a third of it needs to be invested in emerging and developing economies. But only 16% of this amount is being met today. So uh, are you seeing any movement uh, on being able to generate more financing or leverage more financing? Well, Ravi, I'm so glad you raised this because it's easy to focus on sort of the official language and the drama around the official agreements. Uh, when in reality, the core requirement is large scale, long duration, low cost financing to enable this transition. And when you look at it against the 3.8 trillion in need, you quickly observe two things. The first is the United States, Europe and China are actually making large domestic investments through policy and in their economies to move their economies to a more renewable climate future. But then you also see that 81 countries that house more than three and a half billion people who need dramatically more energy in order to lift up their incomes and modernize their standard of living are dependent on largely coal, other fossil fuels like heavy fuel oil and backup diesel generators. And that is ultimately the problem that these cops have to focus on and solve. And right now, no, I'm not seeing significant concessional long duration financing being a big outcome of this particular COP. We can talk through some of the incremental progress points, which I think are notable, but nothing on the order of or the scale of what is required. So before we get to the order and scale of what is required, what are those small incremental advances uh, that you were mentioning? Well, I think one came from the host country, you know, the UAE commitment of uh, $25 billion for uh, energy transitions and climate transitions 
it has to be dissected. About 20 of that is largely for non-concessional, totally commercial investment via uh, you know, OECD-based investment firms. And then about 5 billion of that is allocated in a concessional way to developing and emerging economies. And while one would say, well, 5 billion is not all that much, and frankly, the concessionality, which was, I believe the UAE has capped their return on that 5 billion at 5%, so effectively a, a real return of close to zero. That is a meaningful uh, demonstration of what could happen. And if now we come together as a global community, really figure out how to deploy that $5 billion of, think of it as no return required capital in emerging uh, economies at a time when those emerging economies are starved for private capital, that could become a model that sovereign wealth funds throughout the region and in other petrostates and across the planet mimic and could be the basis of a really unique solution. So that's one. I think some of the steps the World Bank took to make uh, these loss and damage clauses uh, and exclusions a bigger part of their lending portfolios protects countries that suffer damages from climate-related events from having the burden of debt repayment while they're trying to rebuild and recover. That's incremental progress. But nothing ultimately on the order of what is needed in terms of large-scale Marshall Plan-like thinking around how are we going to help developing and emerging economies go green in a way that lifts up their people. And just to put that in perspective, right now, almost 60 of those economies are teetering on the edge of a debt crisis. If you go to Zambia, more than 70 cents on the dollar, or Ghana, more than 70 cents on the public dollar goes to wow. interest repayments. In Kenya, I think it's 62 cents, and you can go country after country. In that setting, countries are cutting public services, they're cutting health and education, they don't really have the fiscal space to make the kinds of investments America's making, the Europe is making, and China's making to green their economies. And that's exactly what we're asking them to do to avoid and to even shut down coal plants that are currently being constructed. So, you know, we got to be real about what this is going to take. And while five billion is a great first step and frankly, a new model that others could replicate, It'll only be looked at as a success if, if it deploys quickly and then it motivates others to do 10 to 20 to 100 times as much. Wow, that is so sobering. You know, and the statistics you were mentioning of 70 cents on the dollar, that is uh, debt repayment. But if those countries need to take out more loans, then, of course, the rates at which they are able to access capital are far worse rates than um, countries in the West have access to. So that's one more layer of problems that we need to unlock. Um, so let's push a little bit towards solutions then. And I'd like to take us through a few of the things you wrote about in your essay in Foreign Policy. But if we leave aside the issue of countries just putting up more money, um, but in terms of the money that is out there, you've, you've also made the recommendation that we need to modernize the multilateral development banks, such as the World Bank. How would that work and how feasible is that? Well, the modernization is long overdue. These were institutions created after World War II for very different purpose than making 30, 40 year investments in greening an economy. They were institutions created before climate change was in our vernacular as a major threat to our global economy and to our very existence. 
uh, and they were created at a time when you know uh, public investment flows were the primary source of investment flows into developing and emerging economies. And that has changed dramatically. Whereas today, those public investment flows are maybe 10 to 15% of flows into those economies and private flows are where the action is and needs to be. So they need to be much more public private in their construct and their structure. And so I've made the case that a few things need to happen. And by the way, I haven't made this case. It's been a case uh, made by a group of economists, political leaders that have come together, initially called the Bridgetown Initiative in recognition of Prime Minister Mia Motley's leadership from Barbados, but then picked up and accelerated and amplified by President Macron at the Paris Financing Summit in June, and then the African Climate Summit in September that President Ruto of Kenya hosted. So it's a global movement around a set of very, very simple principles. The first principle is instead of having five-year debt workouts and a five-year time horizon on lending and repayment, we need 15, 20, 30-year mindset and deal terms around helping countries overcome the debt crisis they're in right now and have the resources to invest in a climate transition. And while there are a number of kind of technical elements to that, it's that shift in mindset from short-term to long-term uh, is the only way we're going to be successful. The second shift has to be around looking at real concessionality. In the current macro environment, you're simply not going to drive capital to renewable energy projects, you know, unless you have enough uh, grant money or very low cost capital uh, that can help motivate private capital to come alongside of it. Rockefeller, together with the IKEA Foundation, the Bezos Earth Fund, created the Global Energy Alliance to do that. We can talk about that in a moment. But we need many more of those examples, and we need developed nations like the United States to lead the charge in making that kind of low-cost new capital available. That's what's not happening right now in the current construct. And then third, critically, we just need new tools and new instruments so that these resources that are being provided can be tethered to actual private investment. A lot of that has to come from domestic sources of capital and local currency sources of capital. And some of that must come from revitalizing aid and the aid architecture. But, you know, aid to Africa, for example, was down from 2021 to 2022, is likely to be down again in 2023 when all the numbers are assessed. In that kind of an environment, it's very hard to then ask countries to make these large investments in greening their economies. Mm. So let's go a little bit deeper on the work you mentioned that Rockefeller is doing and Gates and others, because it strikes me that these organizations are so large, of course, but even there, the amounts that they could put in seem like drops in the ocean or not. Well, you know, I'll tell you about our Global Energy Alliance, which is our big bet to transform the way the world is bringing renewable energy to developing and emerging economies. And just to put it in perspective, there's more than 100 gigawatts of new coal plants that are being constructed, financed, and developed literally right now, even as we're all meeting in Dubai to talk about actually phasing out fossil fuels and moving towards renewable energy. And, uh, and there's a reason for that. And the reason is very low-cost financing that's been provided over the last decade to design and implement that strategy towards electrification coupled with countries' own desires to provide more electricity to their people so they can grow their economies, get reelected, do all the things you need to do to lift your people up. And that strategy is 
absolutely going to undermine. 75% of all carbon emissions in 20 years will come from these developing and emerging economies if we don't do something to stop the new coal now and to transition to renewables much more quickly. So to pursue that goal, Rockefeller, the IKEA Foundation, and the Bezos Earth Fund each committed $500 million of grant money, so free capital, in order to build an alliance called the Global Energy Alliance that is today active in more than 20 emerging economies, already bringing electrification to more than a million people, but frankly has a pipeline of projects that'll reach 20, 30 million people relatively quickly. Uh, and, and the basic thesis is we can use our capital to subsidize or uh, attract other sources of private capital where we take more risk. And uh, we have a long pipeline of projects, but you know, you're right, one and a half billion dollars of truly concessional capital in that context is just a drop in the bucket. What we hope to do is create a model that can inspire others to go big and to make this really the world's most notable platform for bringing concessional capital to the task of renewable electrification. Um, a large part of what you're describing also is sort of initial seed money that then attracts other funds that also is able to leverage other funds. Uh, blended finance gets mentioned a fair bit. What is your sense of how all of those sort of financial techniques really can multiply sums of money that richer foundations or richer countries are able to create uh, out of their funds? Well, it, that multiplication is, is the answer to whether we succeed or fail. So I'll give you an example. In, in the Eastern Congo, in the DRC, we closed an $80 million project to provide electrification, ultimately to 7.1 million people using solar metro grids for townships there that effectively have no grid power. And uh, that effort starts with a first phase. That first phase was about $80 million. I think Rockefeller, Ikea, Bezos put in about $7 million of that. That $7 million unlocked another uh, $70 plus million in financing from development finance institutions and private investors. And that project is now underway. Similarly, we brought together nearly 12 countries uh, around the world to jointly procure battery and energy storage solutions at this COP. And those countries announced that they will together come together, identify projects to access five gigawatts of new energy storage and procure that together on the open global market and implement those projects. Those projects will make it more viable for the next round of electrification to be renewable in those countries because Kenya is a good example. They have the largest wind farm in East Africa sitting at 10 to 15% utilization because the grid cannot take intermittent renewable electrification. So those are the kinds of collaborations and solutions that we really need to see. The challenge, of course, is these all have to be scaled up much bigger. And that requires uh, philanthropies, I don't think can do that, that philanthropies can take risk can show the world what works. But ultimately, that has to be a political judgment that wealthy nations make to say it is in our long term interest to make huge investments with urgency in renewable electrification in emerging economies. And while there have been some verbal commitments, extracting the dollars to back up those verbal commitments has been very difficult. And we'll see what happens uh, at the COP in that context. And you are listening to Foreign Policy Live. 
Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website, foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance, in addition to a range of other benefits, including our magazine. Sign up. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. Hey, it's Cameron, host of FP's weekly economics podcast, Ones and Twos. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I've got the podcast for you. Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast features great guests like Sami Khoury, head of the Canadian Government Centre for Cybersecurity, and Gulsana Mamadieva of the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. Each episode explores the lessons of digital transformation from leaders all around the world. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes, or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. You know, when we began this conversation, you said, we're just not going to see any of the big, bold things that you were hoping for out of COP. But what are some of those things? And what is it that holds countries back from being able to make those commitments? Well, you know, one is a large scale uh, issuance and reallocation of special drawing rights through the International Monetary Fund. That's one of the issues I've advocated for and the Bridgetown Initiative has called for. I think a number of countries at COP will in fact make commitments to allocate uh, those special drawing rights, which are effectively free resources to wealthier economies and could be reallocated at a relatively low cost to emerging ones. And that can generate tens of billions of dollars relatively quickly via the International Monetary Fund. So that's a step forward that I think is worth noting. Uh, I know the World Bank is seeking a major uh, reallocation and increase in its capitalization of the IDA program, the International Development Assistance Program, uh, which will come up next year. And I know there was a lot of political groundwork laid for a bolder, bigger IDA uh, negotiation for next year at this year's COP. The key there is using those resources to, to both support governments, but do it in a way that will attract private capital. And that's been, been the missing link. But that's another bold effort that could generate a hundred plus billion dollars for emerging economies. Uh, there've been other efforts. The Rockefeller team has for years advocated and done a tremendous amount of technical work with the G20 to enable these multilateral development banks that have been in existence for decades to modernize their leverage. And by being more aggressive about using their balance sheets we have estimated they could raise hundreds of billions of dollars additionally and reallocate them. They've taken some very, very small incremental steps towards that effort, but that's another potential source of capital. And when you start to add these things together and then couple that with what the UAE just announced around their 5 billion and potentially uh, what the French government with its One Planet Summit could scale that up across a host of sovereign wealth funds particularly from petrostates, you know, all of a sudden you can start to see public-private solutions that get up in aggregate to 500, 600, 800 billion dollars. And then you're talking about real resources that can make a big difference. So, so I'd say that's the path towards a big bet to transform the multilateral architecture. 
it would be public private, but it really needs the kind of bold political leadership. And we're running out of time to deliver on that. And of course, even with those numbers you're citing, the world is still some ways from the 3.8 trillion figure uh, you cited at the start of this conversation. Well, that's true. But of the 3.8 trillion, somewhere between a third and a half of that is for developing and emerging economies in particular. And of that, some share of that will come from private sources if we get the public financing right. So while that is what is needed, uh, without question, the way you get there is by piecing together a set of public and private solutions that can operate at the scale of hundreds of billions and start deploying that capital very aggressively uh, against some of these big solutions. You know, when we launched the battery energy storage project at this COP, we had ministers and heads of state that wanted to come and speak and be a part of the coalition that we physically couldn't get into the room. And that's just a, a symbol of the kind of demand there is and a thirst for access to technology that's not otherwise accessible, for access to resources that are far too limited and for access to the kind of technical support and collaboration that it's going to take to transform 81 country energy systems to be truly renewable and to enable the phase out of fossil fuels, which go hand in hand. And I think it's, it's a symbol of what needs to happen in the future. We just need much, much bigger commitments against those kinds of collaborations, especially in the global south. And we need to do that with real urgency. You know, I've focused mostly on money and raising financing in this conversation because it often strikes me that we can have all these advances in solar or wind energy, and it's almost a moot point for much of the world if they can't access it, uh, as you were just describing. But I'm in Doha uh, this week, and uh, you were just in Dubai, and I'm sure you'd agree that there's a real sense of resentment uh, in much of the global south. And the resentment takes the form of some of what we've been discussing in that access to capital is hard. Um, the countries that have, uh, you know, historically uh, used the least carbon are most likely to pay the highest price for climate change. And there's a broader sense as well that multilateralism itself is just broken, that the post Bretton Woods organizations, we've talked about the IMF and the World Bank, but also the United Nations are just not fit for purpose to get countries to agree with each other and advance policymaking. When you go to a place like COP and you, you have discussions with people from countries in the global south, is there a real sense of despair at the state of multilateralism? Or do you feel that it is through conferences like COP and through the types of things you're describing that there actually is a lot more hope? You know, I'd say both. And here's the distinction. In the official track of negotiations of uh, our countries living up to prior commitments and are the official multilateral institutions kind of delivering resources in a real way or is it driven by uh, aspiration and press release, there's quite a lot of resentment and quite a lot of language uh, that I hear from partner countries around the world that says, look, th th this, what they're announcing, what they're proposing, the scale of the effort, the $420 million on the loss and damage fund, for example, all that takes a long time to come into reality. And when it does, it is so inconsequential compared to the scale of the immediate debt crisis and the immediate financing gap we're facing 
that it, it seems like we're talking over or past each other. On the other hand, in this public-private landscape, and having been to multiple COPs, I'm amazed by how quickly the public-private collaborative space is evolving. That's where you tend to see much more dynamism. You know, I, we launched a 1,400 rural mini grids in Zambia with President Hichilima while there, uh, and that can hit the ground and transform rural electrification in that country using entirely renewable sources. You know, prior to the next election. Uh, similarly, we can move quickly on those kinds of efforts across the planet, and we don't do that just as the Rockefeller Foundation. We're doing that as an alliance that includes private companies, private sources of capital, some philanthropy, and meaningful domestic government support in the countries that we're operating. And so in that sector, I just see more dynamism, whether it's expanding distributed renewables, expanding access to battery energy storage, transforming uh, agricultural supply chains to have a greater share of total uh, agricultural supply chains be in regenerative agricultural systems with some notion towards carbon capture. Those are where you tend to see more dynamism and more optimism and more practical, hey, this can deliver results in a meaningful way and you're, you're working with me in a manner that understands the reality in which I'm trying to get this done. And I think one of our challenges is going to be bridging that sense of, uh, bringing that sense of optimism back to the official track. Uh, and that'll only happen, I think, when you see more bold leadership from the, those leading the official track. What do you see as America's role? And I guess if you were to put on your old USAID hat on, America's sort of a strange kind of figure on the international stage in that you know, it has this history of withdrawing from the Paris Climate Agreement uh, under President Trump. There seems to be a lot more energy right now uh, through climate envoy John Kerry. But then there's also the fact that, you know, the United States of late has been prioritizing regional agreements, bilateral agreements over uh, multilateralism. And I wonder if that too makes it much harder for the United States to be seen as credible in really bringing countries together around something like climate change. Yeah, I, look, I, I, if I learned one thing uh, during my time leading USAID, it's that when America leads, uh, we start to see transformation happen on a global basis. And when America follows, uh, it sometimes can be very hard to find others who will lead, um, either because they don't have the capacity to offer that leadership or uh, just as likely their perceptions of what America will do hold back their sense of, of aspiration and boldness on the global geopolitical stage. So it's worth asking the question, is America leading? Well, America's domestic uh, energy and climate transformation is in fact a, a, a genuine novel accomplishment that should put to rest uh, any real concerns about American leadership at home on the climate challenge. I think the bigger issue for the COP is can America lead globally? And there I think Secretary Kerry has just done Herculean work uh, as, a, as a statesman of extraordinary renown uh, and making really practical things happen from just energy transition partnerships to his advocacy at this meeting for the phase out of unabated fossil fuels and no new coal plants uh, that are uh, producing unabated energy is extraordinarily important the world listens to that you know those points of leadership you know that said as we've talked about this is largely a financing challenge uh, 
And right now, America is not stepping up with you know, massive amounts of new financing, and it can only do it, in my judgment, if it really embraces the opportunity to dramatically uh, re-envision what the multilateral institutions do. Because the United States plays an outsized role in identifying those institutional leaders, in governing those institutions, in determining their level of risk and their urgency of action, and in how they set priorities. So. We're starting to see some incremental movement that we haven't seen in the past five years. So that's a good step forward, but I think it can be much, much bolder, much more aggressive. And it absolutely needs to be because there are right now, there are no other sources of large new concessional capital. So let me end by asking you this. There's all this incremental progress, as you've mentioned, but none of it is the big, bold change we need. What gives you hope? as you follow this issue, but so many related issues as well? You know, what, what actually gives me hope is, is the fact that our alliance, for example, is paving a path forward that I could easily see uh, the path to scale. So for example, a year ago, you, one would have said, gosh, we know countries need access to energy storage and to improve their grid's abilities to take intermittent power, to change the relative economics of should the next power plant be fossil fuel or renewable. We know that. Uh, but everyone would say the same thing, which is, well, but the deal flow is not there. The projects are not well designed. The capacity and the risk is not mitigated for investors. Now, all of a sudden, you have a dozen countries coming together and saying, actually, we're going to do this, do it at scale and do it together. And all of a sudden, those projects start to appear the risks are reduced dramatically. The access to technology, which frankly hasn't been available for years, is now starting to become available because they're coming together and acting as a collective. And that coupled with what frankly the UAE did with this $5 billion, which is very small and very tentative because not a penny of it has actually been spent yet, uh, starts to give me hope. It's like, okay, if we can bring developing and emerging economies together, raise their level of ambition, identify transformational solutions to accelerate this transition, and then work with sovereign wealth funds, the petrostates that have you know, gotten two and a half trillion dollars of windfall fossil fuel profits in just the last 24 months, uh, use that as a way to reimagine and push uh, the US and, and others to do more on the multilateral side. All of a sudden you can start to see solutions come together that are $500 billion plus solutions. And that feels like big, bold progress. So it's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of leadership. It'll probably take months to years to piece this together, but that's the path forward. It's bold vision. It's public private working together. And it's ultimately a determination to kind of measure the results um, of a big bet the world needs, which is we can accelerate this transition in developing and emerging countries. Well, on that slightly hopeful note, I'll take that. We'll leave it there. Raj, thanks so much for coming on the show. Really a pleasure to have your expertise on FP Live. Thanks so much, Ravi. It's great to be with you. And that was Raj Shah, the president of the Rockefeller Foundation. Next week, your guest is me. I promised an AMA episode and this is it. We'll take on a lot of recent news from the Middle East to Ukraine and China. Remember, you can also watch these conversations live if you're a subscriber. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. You can also see who we have coming up next on our website. 
The podcast version of FP Live is produced by Rosie Julin, and the executive producer of FP Live in video is Tal Alroy. I'm Ravi Agrawal. I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.